Moss knocked over Campbellini, winds up and he scores! Just Campbellini lets a laser go from the near side circle, and the Wolverines take a one and nothing lead off the rocket, off the stick of Jeff Campbellini. Well, we're uh, disrobing our many layers. No striptease, though. It's way too cold for that. Good evening, and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. Out of breath, my name is Dick Whaley. And just settling into the crisp yet comfortable chair, I'm Jim Dwyer. It's dang cold out there, so uh, obviously I'm sure most listeners are aware of that, but... Uh, don't stay outside for too long. Yeah, my guess is school will be called off again tomorrow because it's not going to change much tomorrow. But luckily, there is some relief on the way. That would Starting be unusual uh, to get to uh, two cold days in a row. But uh, it's hard for young children to stay out in that kind of weather. Last night, I uh, actually walked from the place where I dropped my cab off downtown to uh, have a few more cold ones after the Super Bowl. And boy, it was cold. But uh, I made it. What you're needing this kind of weather, by the way, are long johns, boots, good pair of boots, glass, uh, gloves, and, of course, a hat. Well, sometimes covering for your face, too. This is the kind of weather that you can literally feel the inside of your sinus yeah. cavities uh, starting to crystallize over with frost. So That's where the scarf comes uh, in very handy. Not to be taken lightly. A number of people take this sort of weather lightly and think, oh, well, how cold could it be, really? Well, and they don't wear a hat. Which yeah, is it's just crazy. Absolutely insane. But I had a paper route back in the day. and That's I enough to, to learn you, <laughs> as did I. Stay out in this kind of weather for 45 minutes sometimes down there in southern Ohio because it did get cold back then. In fact, uh, the, set, the decade of the 70s and late 60s when I was delivering papers were uh, actually below normal for the decade. By the way, I, or for the century, the 20th century, and oh. I've always attributed that, by the way, to leaded gasoline uh they switched to unleaded oh that's uh, right eventually and i think that uh, cleared up the air and uh i think that leaded gasoline might have actually been causing some global cooling so i'm not proposing that we go back to leaded gasoline to deal with climate change <laughs> although somewhere some executive in an oil corporation is probably thinking along those lines but it's pretty scary when you see that exxon mobil uh, has made over a hundred billion dollars since the uh, Bush war in Iraq started. That's a quarter of, of of the direct military costs that the United States has incurred. Yeah, uh, they're one of the beneficiaries of the uh, the war in Iraq. There aren't many, but they're one of them. And it's pretty frightening when you see uh, uh, a military defense budget of six hundred and twenty two billion dollars requested for the Pentagon this year. Before Bush took office, uh, it was below $300 billion. And uh, I've been reading The Yankee and Cowboy War by Carl Oglesby in connection with uh, E. Howard Hunt. We can talk a little bit more about it at some point. Uh, it's interesting to note, uh, back when John F. Kennedy was president, uh, before Vietnam, 
uh, that he submitted three defense budgets. The 1962 defense budget was uh, $51.6 billion. In uh, 1963, it went down to 50.8 billion, and in 1964, it went down again to 49.9 billion. Those are fiscal years, which explains why there's a defense budget being submitted uh, after Kennedy uh, had passed away. To say the least, uh, our uh, military spending in America is out of control, and of course, our defense policies are correspondingly out of control, and that is reflected by. Uh, just the uh, major numbers of wars that have been going on uh, since then, uh, all of the uh, weapons systems that America has that nobody else has, and of course uh, the fact that 90% of our military budget is actually spent uh, keeping our troops on foreign shores scattered around the globe. We have an archipelago of about 150 countries in which we have military troops. That's the problem. Uh, there's no fundamental rethinking by the way, in either uh, political party, main political party, about reprioritizing America's, uh, shall we say, vision of what we could and should be. Although even to call it a vision is is obviously a misstatement because it really truly is a visionless vision. Yeah. It's a holdover of the Western alliance, the NATO pact, and the uh, military presence in Germany alone. Not to mention the United Kingdom with it, the uh, many Air Force bases there. Um, a complete waste. That kind of infrastructure is incredibly expensive. And to what ends, uh, you know, is it maintained? Yeah, and of course... 50,000 troops in Korea? The United States, even in its occupation of uh, Mesopotamia, and that's spelled with two S's, <laughs> as John Stewart once uh, Riley noted, in fact, maybe we should start calling it Mesopotamia. That's sort of a Latin, big like, Latin version of yeah. Bush's uh, occupation. I of like calling it Bush War in Iraq registered trademark. It's <laughs> kind of the brand name. Yeah, it was marketed. But it's interesting that I I, I heard uh, you know over the weekend there were there, there's been some discussion about the uh, Blackwater Corporation uh, recently having some uh, people uh, killed in Iraq and the. Number of contractors, by the way, is uh, that have died in Iraq is now approaching a thousand, and this is actually about a quarter of the total, uh, shall we say, support system that the United States has uh, got in Iraq. So don't be fooled by the the actual military numbers of uh, you know 140,000, 160,000, whatever it is, and whatever the surge will entail. People have pointed out, by the way, that the surge is already underway. I mean, some part of the surge is just re-dedicating uh, <laughs> some of our troops that are, were supposed to come home uh, right. from Iraq to keep them there. They're not being uh, transferred out under the Pentagon rules, and they're just being told, uh, you're ordered to stay. Well, basically what they're doing is they're changing the rules in the middle of the game for those who have enlisted. Yeah. and th This th is not going to breed confidence in future enlistees. Yeah, and this was pointed out in the, in the 2004 uh, presidential election as a backdoor draft, an issue that I thought Kerry wisely kept hammering Bush on, and uh, Kerry's been proven correct, and Bush, of course, lied. Uh, he kept talking about progress. Uh, stay in the course and all that stuff. But, I mean, when you look at all these uh, private contractors that are both dying and uh, these corporations that are benefiting from the war, 
you get to appreciate the uh, paradigm that Carl Oglesby uh, presents in the Yankee and Cowboy War about how America's actually had two sort of axes of power and that the assassination of John F. Kennedy was the uh, basically the end of the Yankee dominance of uh, political power and that power has shifted to the Cowboys ever since, uh, Nixon, Reagan, and both Bush's uh, and Jimmy Carter all being cowboys, with uh, only Gerald Ford, really, and I guess you could argue Bill Clinton as sort of a half-breed, <laughs> uh, because certainly Bill Clinton's intellectual ideas were influenced by uh, the Eastern establishment, even though he's Indeed. technically a cowboy himself. Uh, this is a very interesting paradigm that he talks a little bit about, that the killing of John F. Kennedy, which is one of the subjects of this book, because the subtitle is Conspiracies, Dallas to Watergate. I, of course, was rereading this book in connection with the recent passing away of E. Howard Hunt, and specifically his chapter on Dorothy Hunt and the plane crash in Chicago, which presents all sorts of fascinating subplots regarding the perfidy of one of those cowboys, Richard Nixon. Uh, he, in his book, by the way, he presents a possible <laughs> conspirator in the, in the Watergate uh, caper uh, as James McCord being a Yankee who was involved in a counterplot to sabotage the burglary. Um, I think there are some interesting elements of James McCord's role in Watergate. This, of course, was an idea that it was actually proposed by E. Howard Hunt huh. himself, that uh, there was something fishy about McCord. McCord's the one that hired uh, the lookout that apparently didn't warn them that the cops were on the way. Uh, McCord was the one that sent the letter to John Sirico that eventually uh, insisted that there were higher-ups involved in the Watergate caper, and indeed there were. But it's fascinating when I get was talking about this last week to discuss the role of E. Howard Hunt in blackmailing Richard Nixon, mm -hmm. which forced uh, the infamous conversation with John Dean in which uh, they're openly talking about getting a million dollars to pay off the burglars and... Richard Nixon's saying, that'll be no problem. We can do that. We can do that. We just need to talk to B.B. Rebozo. Well, of course, B.B. Rebozo emerges as a fascinating figure that apparently uh, first met Richard Nixon when he worked at the Office of Price Administration during the World War II, and he was apparently engaged in a little bit of black market activity involving retread tires, and apparently Richard Nixon met him. <laughs> And they formed that special, special bond <laughs> friendship that only B.B. and Richard have known to have ever had. Uh, somebody once said that Richard Nixon had absolutely no close personal friends except B.B. Rebozo, who uh, was known to sip cocktails on the Potomac with Richard Nixon in one of those speedboats <laughs> that cruised <laughs> up and down the Potomac back in the day. Of course, uh, Rebozo was his confidant in which Nixon could wallow in self-loathing, <laughs> self-pity, and God knows what else. General truculence. But money was where B.B. was very helpful for Richard Nixon's eventual career. And uh, it's very fascinating oh. when you begin looking at the record of E. Howard Hunt. So I look forward to the memoirs, by the way, that I mentioned yeah, I heard you uh, mention that last week. That are going to be published uh, around St. Patty's Day. And by the way, there was another fascinating recent death that I didn't talk about, but uh, is intimately related both to John F. Kennedy and 
Richard Nixon, the so-called Yankee and Cowboy. George Smathers uh, died recently, a former senator from Florida. He was a very close friend of both Kennedy and Nixon, interestingly. At one point, uh, he was uh, urging, he was a friend, of course, of the Castro, um, anti-Castro community in Florida. And in his obituary, which unfortunately I didn't actually write the date down on this, but it was a couple of weeks ago, he had this fascinating... <laughs> comment to make about Claude Pepper. You might remember Claude Pepper from the 1980s. It was always that old... Elderly uh, statesman, yeah, senator. Uh, with the glasses and the... Big old bow tie. Corn liquor nose. And yeah. was always pleading for the social securities and... Uh, he, amazingly huge ears, yeah, if I remember. Just yeah. a, a fascinating... Uh, <laughs> a true character. A true character, uh, who actually, interestingly, was a liberal uh, Democrat from Alabama at one point. But um, in a political campaign, um, George Smathers made this amazing comment. Do you know that Claude Pepper is known all over Washington as a shameless extrovert? Not only this, but this man is reliably reported to practice nepotism with his sister-in-law. And he has a sister who once worked as a thespian in wicked New York. Worst of all... It is established that Mr. Pepper, before his marriage, habitually practiced celibacy. <laughs> Sounds like he's up to some sort of commie preversion. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> and I read that, and I just thought, that is the greatest smear job of all time. <laughs> Throw out a bunch of words that most Americans have. <laughs> I don't even know what it means, and I'm saying it. That's right. A thespian from New York. Wicked New York. <laughs> Isn't all New York wicked? <laughs> this has got to be the uh, playbook that the uh, GOP has been using for years. And while Smathers was a, quote, dashing Democrat, and he knew Kennedy in the party circuit, by the way. They were uh, drinking buddies, playboy buddies. Apparently they passed off some women around each other. So while Smathers is uh, is uh, tarring and feathering Claude Pepper for practicing <laughs> trying ce to celibacy <laughs> before he was married, even more shocking. Uh, it's uh, that's just a incredibly uh, memorable uh, characterization of, of a very beloved political figure on my part, and demonstrates the depths to which uh, red baiting. Um, the Southern Democrats would never stoop to uh, always stoop to these kinds of lows. And by the way, he was one of these uh, people who was a segregationist. He um, coddled segregationist voters, as uh, um, the obituary notes, even though he supported voting rights for blacks, but with some but sought to weaken other equal rights measures. He voted against the civil rights. Act of 1964, he opposed the Thurgood Marshall nomination. And when the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was jailed in St. Augustine, Smathers offered to pay his bail, but only if he left the state. <laughs> well, that's mighty white of him. Yeah. <laughs> to coin a phrase. Indeed. <clears throat> well, uh, a couple of other recent passings worth noting. Um, Anatole Rappaport, former professor at the University of Michigan, 
who uh, was instrumental in helping organize the first teach-in back in 1965 against the Vietnam War, uh, passed away recently, towards the end of January there. <clears throat> and although he, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, later went on to the University of Toronto, where interestingly he became that school's first professor of peace and conflict studies. Uh, he did many notable things here at the U of M, uh, besides merely uh, be an instrumental figure in the uh, teachings against Vietnam, but he was also an uh, outspoken advocate for uh, mental health research. And, of course, mental health, anyone uh, coming of age in the 50s or 60s it became increasingly aware that the American mindset appeared in many ways to be a matter of uh, disturbed mental health. And I think that was one of the great positive things that did come about in the 1960s, largely because of such uh, movements as the teaching and the questioning of authority, that uh, a lot of times the uh, political elite and the power figures behave in ways that could very seriously be categorized or classified as insane. And I think the policies of the uh, current administration are... Uh, Sadly, one of but all too many examples of that kind of insanity. Also, Molly Ivins passed away mm -hmm. last week. Um, a truly uh, remarkable character, a great wit. Um, Paul Krugman uh, memorializes her in uh, a New York Times of a couple of days ago. And <clears throat> he says that, yeah, she was funny, but she was brave. Uh, I'll read a short paragraph here. Um, he quotes Molly Ivins herself as saying that satire has historically been the weapon of powerless people aimed at the powerful. When you use satire against powerless people, it's like kicking a cripple, as I guess Rush Limbaugh discovered when he made fun of Michael J. Fox's spasmodic uh, motions in uh, that entire stem cell debate. Krugman uh, continues, though, Molly never lost sight of two eternal truths. Rulers lie, and the times when people are most afraid to challenge authority are also the times when it's most important to do just that. And he goes on to point out a number of quotes from uh, her columns, which appeared regularly in the Progressive Magazine and syndicated nationwide in various newspapers, uh, in which Molly Ivins, and I'll say, like us down here on Grand Matters, predicted the many, many problems and uh, failures that would result in this war in Iraq before they had even mm -hmm. begun to appear. Krugman says that while she didn't have any inside connections in Washington, she was not a particular expert in the politics or history of the Middle East, and yet she was right about all of her predictions. And I think, again, that speaks to the capacity of average Americans to, once informed, come to their own conclusions about what the best interests of themselves, their families, and the concept of a nation might actually be, rather than trusting the so-called informed experts who have uh, done so much damage. Well, and I think that what she also brought was that common sense approach, and of course satire was the <laughs> method of uh, delivering her uh, vituperative critiques of uh, the power elite. Some of her anecdotes about the Texas legislature are just absolutely hilarious, and I'm sure that her collected oh, writings and editorials, uh, columns, whatever you want to call them, um, will prove to be uh, <laughs> witty reading indeed. I loved the one about the, the dumbest state <laughs> legislator who uh, was having trouble getting reelected, and he decided uh, to shoot himself. 
<laughs> to gain sympathy. And then when it was discovered that there was a Texas law that prohibited such a thing, he went hiding and he was on the lam for a couple of weeks. And it turned out he was hiding uh, at his mother's house. <laughs> and to make matters worse, when the police broke in, he was hiding in the stereo cabinet. <laughs> and Ivan's wittily noted, he always wanted to be a speaker. <laughs> so it was that sort of humor. On the lamb. And of course, you know, I'm sure that most of the <laughs> details of this incident were true. I don't know about the stereo cabinet business and the speaker, but <laughs> she was talking about how dumb the Texas state legislature really is. And of course, it's this Texas element that is frightening uh, regarding the Yankee and Cowboy War. We've had three presidents from Texas since uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated, and uh, they've had us in wars every single year they've been president, with the exception of, uh, well, a couple of months in 1963. <laughs> it's a remarkable record. We're talking about Laos, Vietnam, Panama, uh, Somalia, Iraq, not once, but twice. That's not even counting the proxy wars. Afghanistan, and that, of course, is not counting all the proxy wars and all the shenanigans that have gone on. This shift of power, by the way, is, is a fascinating uh, thing that <clears throat> one great uh, writer, I, I'm sure that you've read this book at some point, the uh, Carol Quigley Tragedy and Hope book. Uh, this is a historian at Georgetown, apparently a ah. big influence on Bill Clinton, by the way who um, wrote um, that the transformation of power involves a disintegration of the middle class and a corresponding increase in the significance of the petty bourgeoisie at the same time that the economic influence of the older Wall Street financial groups has been weakening and has been, ch been challenged by a new wealth springing from outside the eastern cities, notably the southwest and far west. Uh, he wrote this back in the early 60s, this book, uh, Tragedy and Hope. He continues, and I'm quoting here, by the way, from Carl Oglesby's uh, Yankee and Cowboy War. These new sources of wealth have been based very largely on government action and government spending, but have nonetheless adopted a petty bourgeois outlook rather than the semi-aristocratic outlook that pervades the Eastern establishment. This new wealth based on petroleum, natural gas, Ruthless exploitation of natural resources, um, the aviation industry, military bases in the South and West, and finally on space with all of its attendant activities is centered in Texas and Southern California. Its existence for the first time has made it possible for the petty bourgeoisie outlook to make itself felt uh, in the political nomination process of the unrewarding effort to influence politics by voting for a Republican candidate nominated under Eastern establishment influenced by the 1964 election, the major political issue in the country was the financial struggle behind the scenes between the old wealth, civilized and cultured in its foundations, and the new wealth, virile and uninformed, arising from profits flowing of government-dependent corporations in the Southwest and West. And this, of course, is an excellent analysis of what has, in fact, transpired uh, these past uh, 40 years. 
uh, Reagan and Nixon, of course, represented this Southern California and these Southern California corporations. Uh, Reagan Both, and Nixon particularly spoke out often about the elite intellectual pinheads sure. of the East. And we see now how this word Eastern elites or liberal New York elites mm -hmm. is constantly used, by the way, to uh, denigrate candidates like Dukakis um, and, and John Kerry, Kerry specifically, yeah. you know, from Massachusetts. They're called Boston elites, uh, ignoring the fact that, of course, uh, many of the elites in America uh, don't live in Boston and New York anymore, although uh, certainly if you look at the states in which the most number of people with wealth uh, over $200,000 actually reside in California, Connecticut, New Jersey, and Maryland, as well as the District of Columbia, which of course uh, makes the Scooter Libby trial fascinating. Um, this is where uh, by the way, a proposal like John Edwards' uh, health care, uh, so-called tax increase, is centered. These are the states mm -hmm. that have the most people earning two, more than $200,000 that would be affected. So we'll hear John Edwards' uh, health care proposal pilloried by the mainstream media over the next many months as a tax increase. <laughs> well, he's upfront about it and says, yeah, I am going to increase taxes on people making over $200,000 so that we can have universal health care. That's a debate that I'm sure will be a robust one within the Democratic Party, uh, but uh, all, uh, all but absent from the Republican nomination mm -hmm. process. Uh, they're certainly not interested in universal health care. That costs too much. And so does, of course, complying with any um, policies related to global warming. Uh, never mind that the Iraq war costs $2 billion a week. <laughs> That's nothing in their mind. But they're wrong. Of course, that's where the money's being wasted. So, um, yes, this this uh, cowboy-Yankee uh, paradigm that Oglesby talks about is a very interesting one. Uh, well, that is quite accurate. The power uh, elite in America. Prediction of the shift there, too, because, you know, growing up in Jackson, Michigan in the 70s and 80s, you during the four years that I was in high school, you could see the phone book shrink. Mm-hmm. Uh, noticeably every year uh, as the small industries, the auto manufacturing industry uh, took a major hit. And where did the new jobs develop? Where did they arise? Where did the populations that picked up and left places like Michigan go to? The South and the Southwest. And of course, this is where the job growth uh, currently is. Of course, a lot of the economic growth in these areas is, is hideously stupid. It's uh, suburban sprawl and a lot of shopping malls mm -hmm. that quote-unquote, are keeping the economy going. Um, but obviously there's uh, inherent uh, problems in the real estate market. We're beginning to see many uh, southern <laughs> and western uh, cities uh, with in incredible imbalances and rapidly rising uh, default rates. But yes, this manufacturing rust belt that uh, has been denounced uh, by the uh, elites in the media uh, these jobs, these union jobs, are not worth saving. They're too expensive. It costs too much to uh, 
allow the unions to have power. And, of course, we've seen a steady uh, decline in union power uh, since the uh, early 60s. The, and membership as well. The, and the enro- yeah, the numbers are just remarkable. And as these jobs are shifted to the south and west in these so-called right-to-work right states, workers have less benefits, uh, less income, and more economic insecurity. So while Bush can visit Wall Street, as he did last week, yeah. and talk about how great the economy is doing, uh, he's talking to the audience of the converted. Yes, uh, the top uh, 1% in America, as the, all the economic data shows, they own about 70% of the total wealth in They're America. pleased with themselves. And they've never been doing better. Uh, this is the best they've been doing since uh, the 1920s and even dating back to the Gilded Age that uh, Mark Twain was so... Uh, <laughs> Cheesed off about? <laughs> devilishly uh, crit- crit- critical of. Well, there is uh, much to be critical of. One of the most remarkable incidents of the last week has to stand so far as one of the most remarkable happenings of the year so far, this young year. And I'm You're talk- not talking about Paul Wolfowitz showing up with holes in his socks. At- <laughs> <laughs> no, that was... <laughs> That was a showstopper, too. Yeah. But, uh, actually, of course, he had holes in his brain, yeah, in his head. But bovine spongiform issues, perhaps, at play there. They didn't show that. Uh, the, 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 the hair comb-licking thing was, was pretty good in the, uh, in the film. But, uh, no, I'm talking about a brain damage award that's being lobbed ever so uh, delicately in the direction of the city of Boston and Homeland Security. Oh, yeah. This fairly remarkable episode that happened uh, last week in which a couple of uh, artists contracted by some advertisers were spent the night in jail for uh, leaving so-called weapons of mass destruction all over uh, the city of Boston. This was part of a kind of a guerrilla advertising campaign for a rather humorous uh, late-night cartoon called Aqua Teen Hunger Force, mm-hmm. which features an anthropomorphic box of french fries, a milkshake, and a meatball as characters. They are occasionally visited by these uh, extraterrestrial creatures called Moonanites. But not tw- Tinky Winky? No, not Tinky Winky, but just about that lame. And anyway, uh, the city of Boston went into a total and complete freakout shutdown mode uh, last week. Uh, one of my students actually has a sister who's uh, going to school there, and her family happened to be visiting. They were detained in a shopping center. The police wanted the streets cleared as the bomb uh, squads came down. These little... I think 10 to 12 inch signs of like a night, a light bright configuration of a moon and night, this two dimensional cartoon character flipping the bird was perceived by uh, morning commuters, apparently as some sort of weapon of mass destruction sure. because of the batteries mm-hmm. and wires that were seen hanging off of it. Now, the course, the city of Boston is outraged and demands that the over $500,000 worth of costs incurred in their security overreaction should be repaid. Um, the press conference that the two artists gave uh, was uh, brilliantly Dadaist, as they insisted on talking exclusively about 70s hairstyles. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a comment. Ultimately, I just, you know, as we wind the program up here, I think that these artists will be released because they were employed by advertisers. And in no way will advertising be allowed to be vilified in this sense. Advertising is what sells us our wars, our presidents. And, uh, our and the very, Super Bowl. And the Super Bowl. <laughs> the very fabric of our lives is is brought by advertising. So we're not going to critique advertising. 
Uh, maybe these artists will be hung out to dry. Who knows? But something said here by a guy named Paul Grogan, president, chief executive of the Boston Foundation, whatever that might be, said that because of the fact, perhaps, that uh, two of the flights that uh, caused so much uh, dis uh, damage on 9-11 left from uh, Boston's Logan International Airport, Paul Grogan says, there's a sense of vulnerability in Boston, and maybe the alertness